in chapter 15. And folks, listen, we're going to be moving today into one of the most powerful and intense sections of Scripture in the entire Bible. And as you might can well imagine, because it's powerful and intense, it's also one of the most avoided sections in all of the Word of God. In fact, you know, just in light of the topic that we've been talking about last week, we kind of began talking from Revelation at the end of 14 about the wrath of God, the vengeance of God. And so this week, in everything that I would pick up, I'd kind of look to the back. You know how it has the subject index there. And you, you can kind of find the topics that are covered in the book. And so I'm looking to the back of the book uh, and all these different kind of books to find the wrath of God, to find the vengeance of God. And I'm just telling you, you can't find it. I mean, in, in some of the, the most incredible books that, that we say are incredible that cover the attributes of God, go try to find that one. It's just real tough. And you know why? You do know why, right? We don't want to hear it. We don't want to have to face reality. And I want to take the time this morning to show you what I mean by powerful, what I mean by intense. Let's pick up in chapter 15, verse 1. John says, I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels having the seven last plagues, for in them is filled up the wrath of God. And I saw, as it were, a sea of glass mingled with fire. And then that had gotten the victory over the beast and over his image and over his mark and over the number of his name, stand on the sea of glass, having the harps of God. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are thy works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are thy ways, thou King of saints. Who shall not fear thee, O Lord, and glorify thy name? For thou only art holy. For all nations shall come and worship before thee, for thy judgments are made manifest. And after that I looked, and behold, the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony in heaven was opened. And the seven angels came out of the temple, having the seven plagues clothed in pure and white linen, and having their breasts girded with golden girdles. And one of the four beasts gave unto the seven angels seven golden vials, full of the wrath of God, who liveth forever and ever. And the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And no man was able to enter into the temple, so the seven plagues of the seven angels were fulfilled. And I heard a great voice out of the temple saying to the seven angels, Go your ways and pour out the vials of the wrath of God upon the earth. And the first went and poured out his vial upon the earth. And there fell a noisome and grievous sore upon the men that had the mark of the beast and upon them which worshipped his image. And the second angel poured out his vial upon the sea, and it became as the blood of a dead man, and every living soul died in the sea. The third angel poured out his vial upon the rivers and fountains of waters, and they became blood. And I heard the angels of the waters say, Thou art righteous, O Lord, which art and wast and shalt be, because thou hast judged thus. For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and thou hast given them blood to drink, for they are worthy. And I heard another out of the altar say, Even so, Lord God Almighty, true and righteous are thy judgments. And the fourth angel poured out his vial upon the sun. And power was given unto him to scorch men with fire. And men were scorched with great heat and blasphemed the name of God, which hath power over these plagues, and they repented not to give him glory. Unbelievable. And the fifth angel poured out his vial upon the seed of the beast, and his kingdom was full of darkness, and they gnawed their tongues for pain and blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores and repented not of their deeds. And the sixth angel poured out his vial upon the great river Euphrates. The water thereof was dried up that the way of the kings of the east might be prepared. And I saw three unclean spirits like frogs come out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet. For they are the spirits of devils working miracles which go forth unto the kings of the earth and of the whole world to gather them to the battle of that great day of God Almighty. Behold, I come as a thief. Blessed is he that watcheth and keepeth his garments lest he walk naked and they see his shame. And he gathered them together into a place called in the Hebrew tongue Armageddon. And the seventh angel poured out his vial into the air. And there came a great voice out of the temple of heaven from the throne saying, It is done. And there were voices and thunders and lightnings 
And it was a great earthquake, such as was not since men were upon the earth, so mighty an earthquake and so great. And the great city was divided into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. And great Babylon came in remembrance before God to give unto her the cup of the wine of the fierceness of his wrath. And every island fled away, and the mountains were not found. And there fell upon men a great hail out of heaven, every stone about the weight of a talent. And once again, men blasphemed God because of the plague of the hail, for the plague thereof was exceeding great. And now, Lord, I pray that you would help us as we begin to approach this incredible section of Scripture. It certainly will take us several weeks to get through all of this. Lord, I pray that this morning you'd help us to get what you brought us here to get this morning. Lord, give us, give us eyes to see, ears to hear, minds to conceive. And may our lives be changed as a result of the things that we'll see from your word this morning. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, what John sees here is a time in the very near future when after 6,000 years of human history, God finally says, that's it. Enough. I'm done. That's all of the wickedness that I'm going to allow to continue. And what we see from chapter 15 here in, in, in Revelation, along with other places in the Word of God, is that for the last 6,000 years, folks, God who is continuously manifested throughout the Word of God is one who is long-suffering, is one who is gracious and merciful and loving and tender-hearted and forgiving and compassionate. And yet what we find, now check this out, for the last 6,000 years, in the midst of all of those glorious attributes, he's also been storing up his wrath. It's been stored up. And one of these days, it's going to be unleashed. And I want you to know something. For the last 6,000 years, God hasn't missed a trick. Now, there's times we, we look at things that go on and the things that people do and the wickedness that goes on in the earth and God doesn't act the way that we want him to act or when we want him to act. But I do want you to know something. God hasn't missed a lick of anything that has ever gone on. And for 6,000 years, y'all, his name has been defied. His name has been disgraced and defamed and disregarded and demeaned. He's been ridiculed. He's been reproached. He's been resented. He's been rejected. He's been blasphemed. He's been belittled. He's been betrayed. All of those things. He's watched for the last 6,000 years as puny little men stand on the earth and shake their fists toward heaven in defiance to God. He's, he's watched from his incredible throne room that is filled with the smoke of the glory of his presence and the posts of the door Isaiah said just shook because of his incredible holiness and yet from that throne room he's watched down on the earth as people like Shirley MacLaine stand on the seashore and cry out with that puny little voice I am God and let me tell you something we look at that and I'm, if I'm God I'm just telling you I'm bang But he hasn't missed it. He hasn't missed a thing. And the fact is, this morning, he's watched every single time, every single man, every single woman, every single, single boy and girl has chosen their own way and their own will and sinned against him. And what we all need to make sure that we understand this morning is that for the last 6,000 years, century after century and decade after decade, and year after year, and month after month, and week after week, and day after day, and minute after minute, and even second after second, God's wrath has been filling up. In fact, 
Romans chapter 2 and verse 5 even says that those, now listen, it says that those who harden their heart against God and refuse to repent, listen to what it says, they're actually storing up wrath against themselves. And one of these days, that wrath is going to be poured out on them on the day of God's wrath when it says in, in, in Romans 2 there, when his righteous judgment. And please understand that when his wrath is poured out, it will be righteous judgment. And he says when that righteous judgment will be revealed, he, he said what God's going to do is he's going to render to every man according to his deeds. And what he says is those who are contentious and don't obey the truth and yet obey unrighteousness, what he says in Romans chapter 2, is they're going to be the recipients of indignation, of wrath, of tribulation, and anguish. And God even says in verse 11 of that passage, and there will be no respect of persons on this, which is God's way of saying, this means you. But for the last 6,000 years, God has been unbelievably long-suffering. God has been unbelievably patient. But like he told Paul, or Paul preached to those Athenians there in Acts chapter 17, verses 30 and 31. What, what Paul said is God has withheld his judgment in times past. Now listen, but now he commands all men everywhere to repent, listen why, because he hath appointed a day into which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained. And who is that, y'all? The Lord Jesus Christ and what the verse goes on to say. And if you want the proof that this is going to happen, just look at the resurrection. Because as surely as Christ rose from the dead, he too has appointed a day where he will judge this world in his wrath. Jude adds in Jude verse 15 that the Lord is going to come back to this planet, listen to it, to execute judgment upon all and to convince all that are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds which they have ungodly committed, which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. And when you hear that verse, you might just get the idea that God is just a little bit against ungodliness. He says in Romans chapter 1 and verse 18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Yeah, he's been, he's been incredibly long-suffering. But one of these days, it's all going to be over. 2 Peter 3.9 says that he is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. However, there will come a day when that long-suffering is over. And Revelation chapter 15 says that when it is, this is the way the thing's going to shake down. God's going to reach over to one of the four beasts, who, according to Revelation chapter 4, on each of the, the four sides of his throne. And I don't know what it is, but whatever it is that God has been storing up his wrath in, he's going to take it, and he's going to hand it to that beast. That beast will then assemble the seven angels that have been ministering inside the heavenly temple, and he's going to pull those angels before them, and he's going to begin, this beast is going to begin to pour out God's wrath into seven golden vials, if you want to understand what a vial is, it would be much like one of those old perfume bottles. And he says that God's wrath, that that beast is going to possess because God handed it to him, he's going to pour that into those seven vials. And those seven angels in sequence were then going to enter into the earth's atmosphere. And what they will do is begin to pour out that vial or pour out those plagues or pour out God's wrath upon the earth. And you see, that's why I wanted to go on into chapter 16, because you see, they don't actually start getting poured until chapter 16. And I wanted you to understand the power and the intensity. And I, I think it's been real obvious 
We're talking about some incredible stuff that is going to take place. And from the very outset this morning, I, I just want to set your mind at ease about something, something incredibly wonderful. Most of you already know this. A lot of folks are new believers in here, and so I think we need to, to qualify this. And it's this. If you're here this morning and you know the Lord Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, the good news is you don't have to fear this time of wrath. Because the fact is, we ain't going to be here when it's poured out. And I want to show you this back in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Now, some of you new believers can breathe easy on this thing. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. And I want you to notice the, the context that's set for us in, in verse 2. It's the day of the Lord. The time in verse 3, when notice, they shall say, peace and safety. Then sudden destruction cometh upon them as travail upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. And now notice the contrast in verse 4. But ye, brethren, are not in darkness, that that day should overtake you as a thief. You see that? And you can see this contrast all the way through this passage. He's contrasting the children of light or the children of the day with the children of darkness and the children of the night. The children of darkness, the children of the night are the ones that are going to be inflicted with all of the torment and all of this travail that he's talking about here. But he says that this is not you. In fact, look in verse 8. But he says, let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love and for an helmet the hope of salvation. Verse 9 for God hath not appointed us to, what? To wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ. This, this wrath that we were reading about over there in Revelation 15 and 16, what he says here is that, that wrath isn't for you. You're not here. You've been delivered from that. We won't take the time to just, just stay right here in, in 1 Thessalonians. But, but over in Revelation chapter 3 and verse 10, it teaches the same basic truth. The Lord Jesus Christ writes to that Philadelphian church, and he says this, Because thou hast kept the word of my patience, I also, listen, I also will keep thee from the hour of temptation, or that tribulation, which shall come upon all the world to try them that dwell upon the earth. But now I want you to listen real, real carefully to what I'm about to say here. I want to make sure that we don't make the mistake of thinking that though Revelation 15 and 16 don't directly involve you, please don't think for a minute that Revelation, and 15, Revelation 15 and 16 don't apply to you. Okay, now get this. They don't involve you. But I'm afraid that because they don't involve us, we may miss how these passages apply to us. And folks, you can go through the entire New Testament, and what you find is that every time that God provides us information about the last days, it's always given pointing to a practical application that God wants those truths to have in our lives. He doesn't just give us information to dazzle our minds or to, to give us information that we, so we can sit around in Bible studies and talk about. You see, this is why in our flocks group that meet right after this time, that's, that's why the last question every time is how will your life be different tomorrow because of the truths, truths God showed you today. All of this needs to be going somewhere. And every time, again, every time that you see God giving us information about the last days, every time God shows us how it is that he wants those truths to impact our lives. And, and, and in fact, that's, that's the only thing that I want to try to get across today. I'm not real sure that we're ready to move into chapter 15 and 16 of Revelation. I want to make sure that when we, when we get these passages verse by verse, that we're getting from these, these verses what we need to be getting. I want to take a, a few minutes to show you this principle. You should still be in 1 Thessalonians. And look with me in chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 13. 
God begins to detail all of the events that have to do with the rapture of the church. And you see in verse 16, For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. But what you find here is that God didn't give us all of this information, again, so that we could sit around in a little layout of seeing Bible study groups and contemplate all of this stuff. There's something that God wants us to do with this information. Verse 18 begins with what? Wherefore, okay, because this is what's going to happen, comfort one another with these words. And I just want to ask you, okay, did you make the point? In the last three decades, what do you think has happened with this passage? Do you think more people have sat around contemplating all of this stuff and what it's going to mean and, and this is going to happen and all that kind of stuff? Do you think they've sat around contemplating it or using it to comfort those who have lost a loved one? You know what? Most of the time this passage is covered, verse 18 isn't even in, in the whole, whole deal. And yet God says, the reason I'm telling you this is so you can use this to comfort people. Not so that you can be intrigued. Not so you can be bedazzled. And then we just talked about chapter 5, the context again, the day of the Lord, the second coming of Christ, something different from the rapture. The rapture is when Jesus Christ comes in the clouds for his church. The second coming, the day of the Lord, is when Christ comes out of the clouds with his church to set up his millennial kingdom on the earth. And as we saw just a second ago, he gives us the details of that in verses 3, 4, and 5. And he tells us, okay, this is what's going to happen. Then notice verse 6. What's the word? Therefore, and starting here, check this out. He goes through the whole rest of the chapter talking about all the practical ways this ought to affect our lives. Turn over to the book of 2 Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter chapter 3. And beginning in verse 10, he goes through the whole description about the day of the Lord. And he explains all the details of what are going to take place in verse 10. And then he says in verse 11, Seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought ye to be in all holy conversation and godliness? He says, hey, since this is the way the whole thing's going to come down, it ought to affect the way you live your life right now. Knowing this stuff ought to make you want to live a holy and godly life in every area of your life. Drop down to verse 14. In the same exact context, he says, Wherefore, beloved, seeing that you look for such things, be diligent that you may be found in him in peace without spot and blameless. Yeah, you see, folks, God really doesn't give a rip that you knew, know all the details concerning his, his return in the future if it doesn't affect the way you live your life right now. That learning about all these events ought to cause us, Peter says, to be diligently striving to be all that God has called us to be. Turn over to a page or two to the book of 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3. He says, Behold what manner of love, verse 1, Behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore the world knoweth us not, because it knew him not. Beloved, now are we the sons of God. It doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is, and again, the context here is the return of Christ, and John gives us further details about what that event ought to actually mean for us in the future, and it's a wonderful promise, and it's a great thing to know, but watch how he follows it up in verse 3. And every man that hath this hope in him purifieth himself, even as he is pure. You know what John's saying? He's saying if you're a child of God and you know what's in store when he returns... It ought to affect your life to the point that the controlling desire and passion of your life is to live your life with the same kind of purity that Christ possesses. That's what this whole thing is about. Go back to the book of Philippians for a second. Philippians chapter 3. We'll pick up in verse 20. He says, For our conversation is in heaven, from whence also we look for the Savior... The Lord Jesus Christ, okay? So there's the context in verse 20. We're looking for the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 21, Who shall change our vile body that it may be fashioned like unto his glorious body according to the working whereby he is able to even subdue all things unto himself. Chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, 
Okay, because he's coming, and because this is what he's going to do when he comes, therefore, my brethren, dearly beloved and longed for, my joy and crown, so stand fast in the Lord, my dearly beloved. Looking for his coming and knowing what it means ought to affect our life. Go to 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. The context is set in verse 51. He says, Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, in the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound, the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. Drop down to verse 55. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? But, verse 57, Thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Here it comes. Verse 58. Therefore, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. And you know what? It's the same deal. It, 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 what, what he keeps showing us is learning about Christ's return shouldn't cause us to sit around contemplating it, setting dates for it, talking about all the ramification, all the little ins and outs of it. What he's saying is it ought to jolt us into a single-minded devotion to accomplishing the work of the Lord while we still have time. That's what it ought to motivate us to do. And the work of the Lord, again, is not all the nice stuff that we find to do in the name of Jesus. The work of the Lord is the work that the Lord did when he was here working. And you know what that was, right? He spent three and a half years making disciples. That's evangelism, winning people to Christ, edification, taking the Word of God, building them up in the faith, and equipping, bringing them to the place that they can do the same thing, that they can be involved in the work of the Lord. And he says, listen, all this stuff about the coming of Christ, what it ought to do is get you to where you are absolutely fixed on what your life ought to be and what your life ought to be doing. That's what this whole thing is about. I'm just afraid. I'm just afraid that maybe... We might come to the place to where we just fill out a study sheet. And we just want to know all of the ins and outs of all of this stuff that we're learning and seeing in the book of Revelation. Now, now turn, if you would, to Second Thessalonians chapter 5. Second Thessalonians chapter 5. Once again, the context has to do with the events of the last days. Look what he says. Second Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 5. Which is a manifest token of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God, for which ye also suffer, seeing it is a righteous thing with God to recompense tribulation to them that trouble you. And to you who are troubled, rest with us when the Lord Jesus Christ shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power when he shall come to be glorified in his saints and to be admired in all them that believe, because our testimony among you was believed in that day. Wherefore also we pray always, and there's that big wherefore again, Context, coming of Christ. Bang! Wherefore, every time, wherefore, also we pray always for you that our God would count you worthy of this calling. Now, now just check out that, that phrase. Look at it there. He count us worthy of this calling. And you know what he's saying again? All these truths ought to affect the way we, we live. And what the whole passage from verse 5 down to verse 11 is about is that Christ's coming ought to motivate us to live the kind of life that God counts worthy. And, and what this passage does for us, y'all, is it introduces us to the fact that not only... Now, now listen real carefully... Not only does the return of Christ impact the lives that we live right now, but now listen, how we live now 
will have a very definite impact on us at the return of Christ. Okay, now that's on your study sheet. And I want to make sure you got that. I want you to think about that. What this passage shows us is not only does the return of Christ impact how we live right now, but how we live now will have a very definite impact on us at the return of Christ. And what I've done this morning, the reason I have gone to all these different places to show you how the return of Christ ought to impact our lives so that we could come to this point so that we could also understand that the opposite is also true. And that is how we live now is going to have an impact on us at the return of Christ. And I want to make sure that there, there's nobody who has any confusion about anything that we're saying here. Okay, now this is going to be a real important section here. You see, there's a lot of religions who say, oh, oh yes, yeah, Christ died on the cross to pay for the sins of mankind, and oh yeah, you've got to accept him as your Savior, and when you do, you receive a work of grace in your life. But what they're saying by that, now listen, what they're saying is that Christ began a work of grace at the cross, and then it's up to you to carry out works in your life to complete that work of, of grace to actually bring about your salvation. So you got it? He started the work, but it's up to you to finish the thing. And, and I'm just telling you the facts. This is not a shot that I'm trying to take at, at any other denomination or any other religion. It's just a fact. This is how it's presented. This is the Roman Catholic position that you receive Christ plus carry out the seven sacraments of the Roman Catholic Church. And those of you that were here when we went through our, our study of church history from Revelation chapter 2 and 3, what we began to see from that thing is that every church that came out of the Roman Catholic Church in, in the Reformation, all of the, the churches that protested the teaching of the Roman Catholic Church, and of course, because they protested that teaching, they were called Protestants, okay? So you got the Lutherans and the Presbyterians, the Anglicans, and, and, and so on. All, all of these, these Protestant religions then that came out of that system to one degree or another have taken some of the seeds of that theology into their teaching, and the fact is they really don't even realize it. You see, the whole point of the Reformers was that salvation was by grace through faith in Christ alone. I mean, what Martin Luther and the others were championing is justification by faith. But you see, they were coming out of the Roman Catholic Church, and because they did, they were taking seeds that in time would grow into what all of those denominations teach today. And that is that, yes... Christ died for our sins, and he was buried, and he rose again, you know, that, that whole deal. And you accept that. And what they would teach is he gives you salvation, but then it's up to you to maintain the right level of sinlessness and good works so that you don't lose your salvation. And do you see how it's just the Roman Catholic position repackaged and renamed the Protestant churches don't use the term seven sacraments now it's an unnamed and unidentified set of works that have got to be maintained in order to keep your salvation and I want you to understand something we're not a church if you're a guest with us today we're not a church that pushes denominationalism our goal isn't to you know make everybody on the planet a Baptist we're a Baptist church but we refer to ourselves as, as Bible believers. We maintain the name Baptist because it identifies us with a group of people historically who never in any way, shape, or form had any connection whatsoever with the Roman Catholic Church. This is not a, a Protestant church because it was never a part of the Roman Catholic Church in the first place. Baptist was the name that was given the, the churches that were made up of Bible believers who stood against the teaching of the Roman Catholic Church 12,000 years before the Reformation even began. Even before its inception, there were a group of people that were identifying themselves according to the doctrines of this book. And strangely enough, 
It is the Baptist and virtually only the Baptist who teach that when a person comes to Jesus Christ and expresses faith in his finished work on the cross, that at that moment they are as saved as they will ever be. They are born into a relationship with God, and that's why Jesus said that you must be born again. And after you've been born into God's family spiritually, the Bible teaches it would be as impossible for you to get unborn spiritually as it would be for you to get unborn physically. It's not going to happen. And now listen, folks, listen. The doctrine of the eternal security of the believer, you've got to understand this. This is not some little sideline little doctrine that is not, you know, a real uh, importance. No, listen. That doctrine strikes at the very core of, act, of what we actually place our faith in Christ in. Is it going to be Christ alone or Christ plus my works? And the Bible teaches our salvation comes when we receive Christ plus what? Absolutely nothing. And to add anything... To his finished work is to say that it wasn't enough, which in the final analysis is blasphemy. So, so the doctrine of the eternal security of the believer is a doctrine that has everything to do with what the doctrine of salvation actually is. And it's a doctrine that we would never in a million years ever compromise in this church. However, okay, and all that was just setting up. You see, I'm afraid that most Baptists have taken the biblical doctrine of eternal security and have made some assumptions related to this teaching that the Bible never makes. You see, we assume that because every true believer in the Lord Jesus Christ receives eternal security of his salvation, we assume that every believer in Christ also receives eternal equality of salvation. And because of that, there's a lot of folks who are just gung-ho about the glorious doctrine of eternal security who view some of the commands and demands about what our life is to be now that we're saved as if it was just optional equipment. They're all gung-ho about what the doctrine of eternal security does. They're just not real gung-ho about what the doctrine of eternal security means. And to show you what I'm talking about, go, go to the book of Ephesians. This is a classic place, Ephesians chapter 2. And of course, I'm going to bring you to verses 8 and 9, where Paul says, For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. I mean, it couldn't be any clearer. A man is saved totally apart from works. Your, your works can't make you saved. Your works can't keep you saved. Because if they did, you'd have room to boast because you'd have a bigger part in this thing as God did. And God is saying you don't have any room to boast because you didn't and couldn't do anything to earn it, to merit it, to deserve it, or to keep it. He says it was a gift. And you see, as Baptists, we're all about that. We think that's wonderful. What we're not so caught up with, however, is the very next verse. Look at verse 10, which is a continuation of the statement in verses 8 and 9. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. Now, and listen, folks, God didn't save you to take you to heaven someday. He saved you, what does it say? Unto good works. And if you're saved this morning, those good works are not optional equipment. They aren't left for you to decide upon. Well, what do you think? You want to do that or, or not? No, good works are standard equipment for every true recipient of the gift of salvation. He ordained that, he says in verse 10, before Christ had even died to save us and bring us salvation. He ordained it to be so. Go over to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians 5. And all of us who, you know, cling to this doctrine of eternal security, man, 
We're, we're big on if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature, old things are passed away. Verse 17, behold, all things become new. We're not necessarily real big on the next verse, which is also a continuation of the thought in verse 17. First word, and, uh, and all things are of God who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ and hath given to us the ministry of of reconciliation and folks whether you like it or not whether you want it or not the fact of the matter is the day the Lord Jesus Christ made you a new creature in Christ and gave you your eternal salvation along with your salvation he gave you something else he gave you verse 18 says he gave you the ministry of reconciliation he ministered the gift of salvation to you so you could become a channel through which he could minister that gift to others. And listen, folks, how dare us have the audacity to receive what Christ gave us the day that we called on his name and think that we had the option of breaking off our salvation and pocketing the blessing of that thing and then handing back the responsibility of ministry to him or to somebody else when what he says is it's what came with the territory the day that you became a new creature in Christ. He did give you eternal life, but along with the eternal life that he gave you, he gave you the ministry of reconciliation. Now, now listen. I'm going through all of this because a lot of the folks here that are, oh, I mean, you're banking on your eternal salvation. You're eternally secure. I'm just trying to get you to see. If you're eternally secure, no, you can't work your way to heaven. But because you're going to heaven, you ought to be doing some works. And if you ain't, I'd be looking to make sure you really had salvation. Go to Titus chapter 3. Titus chapter 3. Look at verse 5. Now by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy He saved us. By the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost, which He shed on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, that being justified by His grace, we should be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. And I mean, there, there's no doubt about the fact that salvation is totally apart from works before or after salvation or the fact that it is eternal. I mean, I mean that couldn't be more clear. And, and we love that, and well, we should. But if we love that and we affirm that to be true, we must also affirm the truth of the very next verse. Check it out. This is a faithful saying, and Paul tells Titus, and these things I will that thou affirm constantly. Titus, listen, buddy. Don't ever stop preaching this. What's that, Paul? That they which have believed in God might be careful, or in other words, take great care to maintain good works. Why? To save us? To keep us saved? No, he's already told you it's not works of righteousness that we have done before or after we're saved. We don't do the works to save us or to keep us saved. We do them, what? Because we're saved. And the question I have for you this morning is, listen, do you think, do you think that you're going to go through your whole life and pick and choose what you will and will not do in your Christian life and then you're going to stand in the presence of Jesus Christ someday. And what you did and didn't do in this life, do you think, really, that none of that's going to matter? It's not going to affect how you stand before Him in that day? And you know what? I've got to tell you, I really don't think that most people think that it will. I think that most Baptists, I'm not even real sure about this church, I think most people that claim the doctrine of eternal salvation also believe that there is an eternal equality of that salvation. And it really doesn't matter what you do. You know, some folks choose to do good works and after they got saved. And, and well, there's other people and they don't. But, hey, we're all going to live, you know, just happily ever after in the sweet by and by and all that, that kind of stuff. And everything that I've been trying to show you this morning 
as we've been comparing Scripture with Scripture, is no matter where you slice this book, it points to the fact that it does matter. And I think it's time that we come to an understanding of that and start living with the realization that every single day of our life, for all of us that know Him, every single day of our life is either an investment in eternity or it is a divestment in eternity. Something into our eternity or we're taking something out of our eternity, or to put it in the words that Jesus put it in in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 19 and 20, we're either laying up for ourselves treasures on earth now, or we're laying up treasures in heaven for eternity. And the point that Paul and Silas and Timothy are giving to the Thessalonians back in, in 2 Thessalonians, why don't you go back there, verses 5 to 11. The whole point of this is that one of these days, at the end of the tribulation period, again, now that's the context of Revelation 15 and 16 that we're talking about. I mean, what, the context here is at the end of the tribulation, when all of the cards will have been played, and the Lord Jesus Christ is coming back to this earth to judge sin on this planet. What Paul is showing us here is there's only going to be two kinds of people that will be made manifest on that day. Look at the middle of verse 10. Those who have come into a relationship with God because they believe the testimony of this book and personally received Christ in this life. And then there will be those in the middle of verse 8 who know not God, did not obey the gospel, which pointed to Christ as their only hope of having their sin removed. And for those who in this life did not respond to God's only means of salvation, the Lord Jesus Christ will return, verse 8, in flaming fire taking vengeance on them. Verse 9, they shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. Yet You see, they didn't didn't want His glorious power to save them in this life, so they're going to get His glorious power, though. But it's going to be unleashed in the form of wrath on that day. And what it says, they're going to be zapped right out of His holy presence into everlasting destruction. But, For those of us who do know the Lord. Now watch this now, verse 10. Verse 10 says that when Christ comes, He will be glorified in His saints and will be admired in all them that believed. And and you need to understand something, folks. Verse 10 is a settled fact. That's going to happen. Do you believe it? Okay. What this is, this is the time that Peter was preaching about in Acts chapter 3 and verse 21. The times of restitution of all things that he said, which God has spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. Listen, this is what the book has been all about. What, what you see here in Revelation 15 and 16, what you see in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 5 to 11, this is the day that God's people have anticipated all through the centuries. And believe me, folks, there won't be any child of God in that day when Christ makes restitution of all things who will not glorify Him and who will not admire Him with all that is in their glorified bodies. That's going to happen. And Paul and Silas and Timothy, as they write this letter, they're not concerned about that. But there is something they're concerned about concerning these believers. In fact, it was such a concern that they say at the beginning of verse 11, look at it, that every time they prayed for the Thessalonians, this is what they prayed for. What's that, guys? Wherefore also we pray... What's the next word? always for you that our God would count you worthy of this calling of what calling look back at the middle of verse 5 that you may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God and drop down to verse 10 again and to be a part of that kingdom that the Lord will set up on this earth on that thousand year day and be one who will be glorifying and admiring the Lord Jesus Christ on that day that's the calling the calling to his kingdom to glorify and admire Him. And notice now, these guys, they're they're not praying that the Thessalonians will be one of that number on that day. No, they they were guaranteed to be a part of that number the day they believed. And they're not praying in verse 11 that on that day when Christ comes at His second coming in the glory of His power, that these Thessalonian believers would glorify and admire Christ. 
They're not praying that. They knew that they couldn't help but do that. What Paul and Silas and Timothy say they pray always for the Thessalonians is that God would count them worthy in that day to actually offer that praise and that worship and honor and glory in His kingdom. Now, folks, now, now, I want you to think with me, okay? If this is what these guys are, are constantly praying for, it must be possible then to be saved, to be a part of His eternal kingdom, and glorify Him and admire Him in eternity, and yet not be counted. What's the word? Worthy. I mean, they say we just keep praying. Why do you pray about the inevitable? He says, man, we just can't get this out of our hearts for you. Oh, oh we know you're going to admire him. Oh, we know you're going to bow. Oh, we know you're going to glorify him. Every believer is going to do that. What we're real concerned about is that you'll be counted worthy to do what you're doing. So that raises two very important questions that every one of us that names the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and expects to be one of those that it's glorifying and admiring in that day needs to answer. The first question is just very simply this. What in the world does it mean for God to count you worthy? Which leads to the second question, that is, will he count you worthy to do what you're going to do in eternity? And, and you know what? The, the cool thing about it, it's not like the answer to these questions are some deep, dark secret or some hidden mystery of the Word of God. You know what? It's really pretty simple. That's, that's what I love about God. Hard questions that are answered real simply. Okay? That's why we miss them. Okay, in chapter 2 of 1 Thessalonians, look back there. What Paul's doing here is he's recounting the ministry that he and Silas and Timothy had when he was with the Thessalonians. And he says in verse 11 of chapter 2, As you know how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you as a father doth his children. And what was it that they were so intent on? Verse 12. That ye would, what's the word? Walk worthy of God who hath called you unto his kingdom and glory. I mean, here's the deal. If God's going to count you worthy in his kingdom, it's going to be because you, what? Because you walked worthy in this life. And all God's people said, duh. Right? If he's going to count you worthy, you know why? It's because you walked worthy in this life. By, listen, by your walk, you show God what you count Him worthy of. And by your walk, He will likewise determine your worthiness in His kingdom. You get that? You see, and that's why over and over in Paul's letters to the church, you see him admonishing those of us who know the Lord to walk worthy. You see it here in 1 Thessalonians. Turn back to the book just before, the book of Colossians, chapter 1 and verse 9. He says, For this cause we also, since the, the day we heard it, okay, that is the, their faith, do not cease to pray for you, verse 10, that ye might walk worthy of the Lord. And turn back to the book just before Colossians, Philippians chapter 1, verse 27, only let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel of Christ. And that word becometh is the same word that's translated worthy. Colossians 1.10, 1 Thessalonians 2.12. Live a life, he says, that is worthy or becoming of the gospel. And notice the word conversation there. That's not just an old dried, dried up archaic King James word. Listen, conversation is the absolute best word that could be used. Because what he's saying is your life speaks... Check it out. What he's saying is by how you live your life, you scream out a message to the world and to the Lord Himself of what you count Him worthy of. And turn to the book of Ephesians. 
book just before Philippians there. Philippians chapter 4 and verse 1. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that ye walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you are called. Now you see, that's what this thing is all about. If you're saved this morning and you expect to be one of those who will be admiring and glorifying Christ when He sets up His kingdom on the earth, God will only count you worthy to do what you will do on that day if you walked worthy. And listen, if in this life you don't use your mouth, which Jesus said in Luke chapter 6 and verse 40, speaks out of the abundance of our what? Of our heart. If our words don't glorify the Lord Jesus Christ right now, we don't use our bodies and our spirits in this life, which according to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, 19 and 20, tell us that God bought with His own precious blood and are no longer ours to do with as we want, but are His and are to be used to do what He wants. And He even tells us specifically in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 20 what He wants us to do with these bodies and these spirits. We are to use them to glorify Him. And listen, for us to go through this life admiring this world and the things of this world and continuing to fulfill the desires of the flesh and of the mind and, and we go through this life and we, we seek our own satisfaction and our own pleasure and our own glory and the lust of our flesh and the lust of our eyes and the pride of life and then we come to the second coming of Christ when here He is, man, and He's executing His judgment upon all the world, man, and, and here he is, he's physically and visibly setting up that kingdom that we are supposed to have been living for by faith. And then all of a sudden, after a life full of spending it for ourselves, now here we are, and all of a sudden we're worshiping and we're admiring and we're praising and we're glorifying God. The fact is, we'll do it. But we won't be counted worthy. And let me just, let me quickly try to lay this thing out for you as practically as I can. Okay, now check this out. Here's a guy, and man, ever since he got saved, this world has had no more appeal to him. He didn't live to gratify his flesh. He said no, as Colossians 3, 5 says, to fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, and covetousness, which is idolatry. He, he lived daily, dying to himself, putting off the old man, as Colossians chapter 3 and verse 8 says, and as 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 14 says, not fashioning himself according to his former lust that he had before he came to know Christ. No, this guy, man... From the day that he got saved, he lived a holy life just as he had been called to live. He, he didn't live this life seeking the things on this earth, the things that Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 19, that moths can eat and rust can corrupt and thieves can break through, through and steal. No, he lived his life according to Hebrews chapter 11 verses 13 through 16. He was going through this life, but he was seeking another country, a, a better one, another kingdom with, that you couldn't see with physical eyes, but you could only see through the eyes of faith. And he desired that kingdom so much that just like it says there in Hebrews chapter 11, he wasn't, he, he wasn't mindful of that kingdom that he had been brought out of. He had no desire to return to it. And so he walked through this life as a, as a stranger and as a pilgrim seeking that other country. He woke up every day and he spent time talking to God and admiring God and worshiping God and praying that the kingdom would come to this earth so that Christ would finally get the glory that He deserved. And every single morning when that sun made its appearance on the horizon, Malachi chapter 4 and verse 2 just crawled all over him because he knew that it was a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son, capital S-U-N, rising in righteousness on this planet at the day of the Lord. And knowing full well that time, he prayed, he longed for his coming. Second cha uh, Timothy chapter 4 and verse 8 talks about that loving His appearing. And every day He prayed for His kingdom to come. And He prayed that He would glorify the Lord Jesus Christ as He went through His day. And that passion brought Him into this book. 
not just to be a goody-goody Christian who has his little daily devotions every day, but because his heart cried out with Paul's in Philippians chapter 3 and verse 10, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection. And that longing, that passion, it led him to know God as it revealed himself through this book. And because he knew him, he loved him. And loving him, he began to fall in love with that which the Lord loved. And he began to set his life on those that the Lord Jesus Christ set His life on. Those people who don't know Him. And that passion led Him to walk through the open doors in His local church. And He followed the Lord anywhere on this planet so that He could get the good news of the Gospel in His Jerusalem and His Judea and His Samaria into the utter parts, uttermost parts of the earth. Now listen. You take that guy as he glorifies the Lord Jesus Christ and he admires the Lord Jesus Christ at His second coming as the Lord makes restitution of all things. And you put that guy next to a guy that's like most 21st century believers who live every single day of their life in the lust of their flesh, not denying themselves, but seeking themselves in their own pleasure. The sun comes up it has no bearing whatsoever to do on the day of the Lord for him. The sun coming up means another day of getting ahead and getting more and more things on this earth. And he goes his whole life and he spends his life on all of these things. And then the Lord Jesus Christ comes back in all of his glory. And oh yeah, he's glorifying. Oh yeah, he's admiring. Oh yeah, he's holding him in awe. But I'm just telling you, it ain't nothing like this other guy over here and what's coming out of his heart. Do you understand that? Do you? One is counted worthy for all of eternity with a free heart, a worthy heart. We'll praise and admire and glorify God. And the best I can reckon it, there's a bunch of other folks that'll do all of that. But their capacity to do it won't be anything like that one over there. God measures your worthiness on your walk. And yet most of us that believe in eternal security think that we've got options and all this and you know what, it it really doesn't matter anyway. We're all going to be there. And we will. And you know what, I don't understand it all. Heaven will be heaven for you. I'm just telling you, heaven's going to be more for some folks than it is for others. And boy, I don't know about you, but what this does for me is it says, you know what, I just want to make sure that God counts me worthy of what I'm inevitably going to do on that day. So as we continue on in our study of the book of Revelation, though all of these things that we're going to see in Revelation 15 and 16, though they don't really involve us, oh oh my goodness, don't miss applying them to you. Because when He comes, and all that destruction is being meted out upon the people who don't know God, that other group of people, He's going to watch him do this and will hold him in glory and will admire him. Some counted worthy and some not. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you know what this is? It's a wake-up call. It's a wake-up call to say, we better start thinking in terms of eternity. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4, 17, while we look not on things which are seen, for the things which are seen are temporal, 
things which are not seen are eternal. And that's where his eyes were focused. And that's, that better be where I, our eyes are focused. And would you contemplate that this morning, child of God? And if you're here today and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, oh my goodness, there is coming a day of his wrath. It will be poured out upon all those who know not God and obey not the gospel of God. And yet today you have the opportunity to obey the gospel of God. The gospel is the good news that Jesus died and was buried and rose again so you don't have to experience his wrath. And if you want to come to him today, our pastor is going to be up on either side of the front of this room as we're being uh, concluded here in just a moment. This is our invitation to you to, to talk to somebody today while God's at work in your life to talk to somebody that can take you to the Word of God and begin to show you from the Word of God how your life can be eternally changed today. Now, Lord, I, I do pray for folks that are in this room that, that don't know you. And most of our time today has not been directed to the lost, though certainly your word has gone forth and there has been plenty to reveal their need of salvation and the fact that your wrath will be poured out in the near future. And Lord, I, I pray that today you would speak to their hearts and I pray that people would be saved today and Lord I pray for all of us who do know you that we would be counted worthy of your kingdom and we pray that as we continue to discuss the theme of the book of Revelation that it won't just be truths to intrigue us and to fill our minds we pray that it would be things that you would use to cause us to be pure, to cause us to be diligent, to cause us to be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in your work while we still have the time. And so, Lord, please change us today. And those of us that if you were to come today, wouldn't be counted worthy. Lord, may every single minute of every single day for the rest of our life be changed, that we may be counted worthy. May we never forget the things that we've seen from your word today. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.